everyone. Welcome to the Gibbs Spotlight. Today, you are going to hear Gibbs College Dean Hans Butzer and Karen Renfro of the OU Foundation speak with University of Oklahoma alum Michael McEvley. They sat down with Michael to learn about his position as the CEO of McDermott International, his time at OU, and his ideas for the future of design-build education. Good afternoon, Mike. You doing well? Yeah, Hans. How are you? I'm well, well, very well. Well, we appreciate your willingness to make time. I'm I'm so convinced that the students are going to just love your perspective Um, in this day and age. And you probably have figured this out. um, There's so much conversation about multiple careers in one's life. Right. And and the idea that, you know, we can make a decision today, but that doesn't, you know, shouldn't lock us into, you know, new opportunities that come ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in life. So, so because we're recording, I think it's going to allow us to kind of create this fabulous uh, post for our Gibbs channel and, and, and get it in front of students. Uh, in fact, next week in my intro to architecture course, we'll be talking with some uh, alumni who graduated in the last 10 years and discover which career paths did they take leveraging their, you know, architecture, environmental design degree backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're ready, uh, I'll simply start with asking, well, tell us, Mike, what is your job today and, and what is it that you do with your job today? So my job today, I'm the president and CEO of McDermott International, and we're a global engineering and construction company that designs and builds offshore oil and gas platforms, undersea structures. We lay oil and gas piping on the ocean floor. We also uh, build uh, LNG plants, ethylene plants. Uh, we build large hydrogen storage spheres, oil and gas storage tanks. And then we also fabricate everything that we do. So we're a self-performed contractor. And we've got about 30,000 people around the world, virtually in all of, really in every country. And uh, we're headquartered here in Houston. So what I do is I'm the leader of, of that. And so as a follow-up, how big is your, the management team that you meet with on a regular basis? So I have an executive committee of about eight people that report directly to me, and that covers you know, my chief financial officer, my chief human resources, chief legal, uh, and then my uh, profit center leads. We're global profit centers based on the project type. So for our deep water subsea business, I have a leader for that business. And for my offshore Middle East, I have a leader for that business. And then my onshore projects someone leads that. And then I have, you know, global support operations. But um, anyway, it's a, it's a pretty well-oiled machine overall, I think. It must be, right? Um, for, I mean, it sounds like you've got a lot of tentacles out there that you have to manage and, and coordinate. So I know our, our students would be so interested to learn more about, well, how did you get to the point where you are today, uh, CEO and president of McDermott? What are the steps, your life paths that got you there? Maybe in reverse chronicle order. You know, probably the penultimate thing was back in 1993, uh, I was working for Lockwood Green in Dallas, Texas. I was the uh, manager of the architectural department there. So all the architects in the office, out of an office of 300 people, we had about 15, 20 architects. They all reported up to me. And, And so we were doing industrial projects. We weren't doing beautiful architectural projects, but they were nonetheless technical industrial buildings. And the head of that office came to me and asked me if I wanted to go to Germany to open up and run 
an office for Lockwood Green in Germany. What was interesting was I, I didn't really even think much about it. And I said, sure, sure, I'll do that. And he said, now you do realize that if you do this, you'll have to be just as excited about a, you know, an electronic substation project or a, a water treatment plant project or just canal or something. You have to be just as excited about that as you would be a building, because if you, you, know, you may not be doing buildings anymore. And I, I remember it. That was a, a moment in time when I thought my career was taking a different direction and I was walking away from buildings. I was walking away from managing all the architects and being you know, the top architect in the, the office there to doing something totally different. And I said, okay, that was the real turning point because after that point in 1993, I did design some other things along the way. I did continue to stamp projects every so often throughout my career, but really the turn went into what I would call general management at that point. Yeah. And so how many years were you with uh, Lockwood Green before you took your next step? Well, I was with Lockwood Green from 1988 until they were acquired by CH2M Hill in 2005. And then um, when I left CH2M Hill in 2014, so I had 27 years between Lockwood Green and CH2M Hill combined. Okay. And then from there, you moved to Gilbane? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went to Gilbane in 2014 as the uh, CEO of the uh, of Gilbane Building Company, yeah. which was back, back to buildings again, but as a builder. Right. On the construction side. So it sounds to me like you have a range of skills that have, that have allowed you to flourish in certain specific, you know, more specialized areas, but then also to be able to branch out and suddenly take on this highly complex management role. Talk a little bit, if you would, about the skills that you developed in school that may have been of some help, but also the skills that you have now that maybe evolved just by virtue of these unique opportunities that have been presented to you? You know, I think, I think there's two things there. The experience in architecture school and, uh, you know, my experience at the University of Oklahoma was just like the traditional experience where long hours, long nights, staying up a lot of time. At that time, you know, the school was in the, under the end zone of the stadium and we would be up there just 24 seven trying to finish projects. And then we would, get into a jury situation and we would be crucified by the professors and our peers for um, you know, our, our terrible performance, whatever it was. And <laughs> we look back on that fondly. I've mentored a lot of people through the years who are going to architecture school and they just said, this is too tough. I don't, you know, they're criticizing me. They're criticizing my creation. They're criticizing my designs. But I really think that that experience of the jury exposure and the presentation and the the really long, 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 hard effort to get to that completion point. And then when you're complete, someone is, is really holding you to the fire. I think that that really prepared me for a lot of the things that I had to do in general management. Because when, you, when you're running and you're responsible for profit and loss on any kind of a business venture, you are really brought into the most difficult situations with the most critical clients or the most uh, egregious situations of conflict that mm-hmm. you, have, you have to not only uh, endure, but you have to come out on the other side as a survivor. 
And I think so that that experience in university, which a lot of other professions, a lot of other um, majors don't necessarily have such a tough time that we have. I think I think that prepared me quite a bit for that. The other thing that prepared me for it was really my father. My father was an architect. He had his own architecture firm when I was growing up. And when I worked for him, he was a sole proprietor. And he he would tell me stories about there's meetings that you go into and the meetings are going, it's like a small battle. The company is going to win or the company is going to lose in this meeting, or maybe you're just going to survive the meeting. But there's always someone in the meeting from, from the company side that is the one that has to do something that will determine whether you lose, you win, or you survive. So are you going to be the one who does something, or are you going to be the spectator to the train wreck? And so if you think about that, you know, you go into any, any kind of a business situation, yeah. lots of times where you're walking in the door, something has to happen in that meeting. And Honestly, when you're new in your career, you might think, thank goodness, the boss is the one that's going to have to fight this. I'm just going to watch this battle. Yeah. Right? But yeah. at some point, you have to be the one to go to battle and you have to be the one to come out somehow unscathed the best you can. And it's really few people. It's few people in the business world that have the ability to go into those circumstances and to um, take on those challenges, either they're conflict averse they're risk averse. That's too uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. If you put the two things together, an experience in architecture school where you really are battle tested and you're, you're put out there and you're exposed and you have to live on the decisions that you've made and you're criticized or praised, depending on what you did. And then you say, okay, if it is going to be, if my career is going to grow, I've got to be the one that makes a difference. And I can't be the one that makes a difference sitting on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is amazing advice right there. And while we're on the topic, so what kind of work did your dad do? Well, my what dad, you know, grew up in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. My dad uh, designed um, churches and universities and uh, a lot of college buildings. He designed most of LSU Shreveport and some of LSU yeah. and then uh, most of Centenary College there in Shreveport and multitudes of churches of all denominations throughout the South. You know, he ended up really having a great full career. And I worked for him, you know, for a brief time when I first got out of school, but uh, learned a lot from him. Yeah, uh, that must have been amazing. And, and also exciting to see your father's work around you, right? And shaping yeah. communities, shaking lives. What, in what year did you get licensed? Or are you licensed? Oh, yeah, I'm licensed in 25 or 30 states. <laughs> I think I got licensed uh, and I'm still licensed and I'm still getting my, you know, continuing education units yeah. every year. I think I got licensed in 1983. 83. Awesome. Yeah. Was that in Louisiana? Yeah. First, well, first, no, I got my, ba my base state was Oklahoma. So was I, got, yeah, I got a license in Oklahoma first. Did you practice in Oklahoma? You know, I was not at the time I was with C.H. Guernsey and company in Oklahoma City. Oh, my word. No and, way. Oh, so, uh, you know, Pat Carroll. I don't know if you know yep. Pat Carroll. Pat was my I boss at the time. And I think I, that was when I worked for them, I was taking the exam. And then uh, I went to work for Lockwood Green. So I must, yeah, I must have gotten licensed when I was with Guernsey. Okay. Oh, this is great. I love these details. It's, it's so cool. 
So, you know, as you've been sharing here and talking about, you know, basically traditional practice, right? And then starting to, you know, move into companies that are dealing with construction as well as architecture, infrastructure, right? As well as, you know, typical buildings, cities, streets, and so forth. You know, surely you've had time to reflect on the sources of tension and success between architects and builders or contractors. What advice or perspective would you want to share, not just with students today, but perhaps also just as importantly with faculty? Yeah, it's interesting because I have been on both sides and I've been on both sides for uh, a tremendous amount of time on both sides. And I always remember, you know, when I was doing working drawings and I was doing building design and then I was managing architectural projects the contractors were always trying to change what we designed to make it cheaper, right? I mean, that was that was the typical thing. Uh, or they would not want to construct the detail the way we had designed it and detailed it. And, you know, there was going to be a problem with moisture infiltration or structural integrity or you, you name it. There was always something. And, and, uh, and even my father, when I went to job sites with him when I was a, a kid, he would give me binoculars to look up at the ceiling and tell me what to look for because, you know, the contractors would try to punch, you know, nails through the tongue and yeah. groove wood ceiling in this, in this, uh, you know, chapel. And, and sure enough, you know, with the block binoculars, I can see the nails poking through and, you know, and he, he'd said, I knew they weren't going to use the length nail that I specified, you know, that mean that kind of thing. So I grew up thinking it's us against them. They're going to try to take advantage of us. And then when I got onto the uh, construction side, particularly at Gilbane, where we are building high-rise skyscrapers in New York City, you know, we're building art museums, uh, the Corning Glass Museum. We built that, for example. Oh. Uh-huh. You know, and then we're building, you know, large things for Amazon and and uh, pharmaceutical plants and everything else. I saw it differently. And so maybe there are contractors that are trying to take advantage, but any project where there's a teamwork between the design team and the construction team as early as possible. Now, you might call it design build. You might call it construction management at risk. You might call it, you know, IPD, whatever you want to call it. But really, the, the secret sauce is that they start communicating extremely early in the process. Mm-hmm. That Then the construction side really understands what the design side is trying to achieve and can provide advice and, and counsel along the way. Yeah. And then the design side can also then kind of open up a little bit and say, this mm-hmm. is what I'm trying to achieve. I'm not really sure how to construct this. How would, how would you see that we would construct it? And then you go back and forth because you've really got good builders on the construction side and you've got, you've got great, great designers and great detailers in some cases on, on the architectural side. But what I've seen disappearing over the last 15 years is the true, you know, the, the architect that really knows how to put the building together. There's fewer and fewer of them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's natural because of so much of the detailing, you know, it comes from the manufacturers. They'll send you the window details on CAD or they'll, the curtain wall comes fully, fully detailed. So there's a lot of things that are missing. Yeah. You know, in the traditional working drawing understanding, I don't think it has to be the way it was when I was in school where you were creating every every detail from scratch, but there's gaps. Yeah. And so the gaps have to be filled 
uh, these days by usually the builder. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I walk a job site that we were building and there's, there's something unknown there. The owner's mad, but we don't have a detail for that. There was no, nobody thought about that particular, you know, situation or closure where these two materials would meet. So then we're all trying to figure it out together. So I, I think there's a, a need probably no other time where everybody can communicate really, really closely with each other on both sides. But the days of the days of completing a set of working drawings 100%, and then you drop them off at the Dodge room, and then you have all the contractors bid them, uh, that doesn't really happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's almost like a, a loss of sense of craft mm -hmm. on the architect side, right? Um, I, I fully appreciate this. And, and as you many mentioned, not only are not all contractors set up to be great collaborators, Right. But we also know that not all architects are set up to be great collaborators. Right. I mean, it's there's there's a lot of work to be done on both well, sides. We talked about this before, Hans. I think uh, you and I about that, that, that the builder, the commercial builders have had to bridge the gap from a BIM perspective. Yes. You know, and so what they've had to do is to take the, the BIM files from the architects and the engineers and then take them to a, a degree of specificity even further and using their constructability into that, particularly on the higher tech buildings or the industrial or the pharmaceutical, you know, biotech or electronic buildings, you've got to go to that level of, of detail. And, you know, I, what advice would I give the professors on this? I think it's something that's missing, just the constructability piece of the, the young architects that I've seen a lot of. Yeah, this uh, resonates. So, you know, carrying this a little bit forward, right? And again, uh, we touched upon this in a previous conversation a few months ago. What would be the priorities in your mind in a college where you have a nationally ranked architecture program and a, an amazing construction science program whose students are winning, you know, the top three places in all regional awards and sometimes national or international student competitions? What would you focus on if you were creating a college that had those two leading programs to emphasize, to make sure we graduated the best possible students that employers would just eat up, whether architecture or construction. Yeah, if you really think out of the box or you're not, you're not constrained with what degree programs are, you want people to really spend some time on either side. Yeah. Both in, in both programs to where they, they could cross-pollinate a little bit without impacting their degree progression. Yeah. Right. So and what I what I think they would find if they did that is they would find that maybe they gravitate more toward one side or the other, uh, you know, that through that process. And so not only are they exposed to more than they would in a traditional one side or the other path, but then they probably start to get an inkling of what they would really enjoy doing the most. Yeah. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. It's basically learning another, you know, give them a chance to, to do a, a kind of a quick learn someone else's language, right? Mm -hmm. Get into their shoes, see things from their perspective, and then step back and see how that changes your own, mm -hmm. your own reality, your own framework. This is very helpful. And you're, you're hitting a lot of the key questions here. And I'm, I want to stay, you know, be mindful of your time and stay on the program. So shifting gears, you know, you mentioned working under the stadium 
uh, when you're in Archer. Other than just how much you must have just loved, you know, working under the stadium with like bugs on your drawings and sweat from your brow, staining a drawing. Uh, what are some of your other favorite memories of being in our program here at OU? I mean, this, I mean, this may sound like an odd memory, but I, I, I cut off the end of my finger, two different fingers, you know, um, <laughs> working on, um, you know, building a model. And, uh, you know, the folks that are working on building models, you have these X-Acto knives and, you know, the yeah. X-Acto knife where the, um, the blade breaks off and then you have a sharper one. Right? Uh-huh. So, uh, one night, I think 3 a.m. or something like that, I was trying to break off the, the blade to get a sharper one, and the the old one embedded itself in the top of my hand, you know, and and it wouldn't stop bleeding, and and um, but I got it to stop bleeding, and then somewhere an hour or so later, I was I was you know cutting chipboard, model board, and cut off the end of my index finger, and ran to the infirmary, and there on the campus, and they were able to stitch it back on real quickly. And then I got back in time for the uh, presentation, you know, <laughs> it was 7.30 and I, I don't remember which professor it was, but you know, I, my hand was all bandaged and he said, what did you do? And I said, I cut my hand twice. And he said, I, I saw a bunch of blood in the men's room and I wondered what that was. <laughs> of course today we would never, you know, never do that. But I mean, my, my point was of that story when I think about it and when I, talked to kids, you know, we were all in it together. You know, I wasn't in the studio by myself. I would, and I've got friends and colleagues that I met during that time frame that I, that I still correspond with and still talk to from that period, because there's a, there's a bond that occurs during, during those wee hours of the morning that you don't, you don't get anywhere else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And where are those friends now? Oh, they're working uh, in different firms. Some of them have worked in the same companies that I've been in. And uh, some are getting close to retirement now. So it, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And they're also across the, the country, I guess. Yeah. And across the world. I remember the best projects that I did, you know, and I remember the worst projects that I did. I mean, I, I still do. I, I remember I can picture them in my mind. Things that I designed that were okay. That's okay. I don't think anything was ever great <laughs> that I designed, but the things that were okay. And then the stuff that um, was just really terrible. I remember that too. Yeah. Did you have a favorite professor? You know, uh, Professor Hess. Yeah. But, yeah. He was one of my favorites. And then what about campus? Did you do a lot on campus too? Well, you know, I was in, um, I was in the dorms like everybody else was. I was at, I think I was in Walker and um oh, wow. And then I was in the card section at the football games. Do you, do you, do you, I don't know if you ever remembered the card section. Karen does. This is, this is where um, as freshmen, we had no status to get tickets. So if we were able to participate in the card section, we had a little bit better end zone tickets than normal. And we had, we had a big card that we were assigned. And then at certain times during the game, our whole section would turn, hold our cards up and it spelled out, you know, Boomer Sooner or something like that from the other side, you could see it. So we just had a big card that we would hold up in front of us several times during the game. That was uh, something that we did. But I, I, I was also, uh, during my time at OU, I was a disc jockey. I uh, wow. spun records at KNOR and 
I played drums and a local country band. And so I had a, I had a great time. So what are your favorite, uh, who are your favorite bands? Well, my favorite band now is a, a band called Porcupine Tree. Porcupine Tree. Porcupine Tree. They're progressive rock. And uh, you've never heard of them. Best band nobody's ever heard of. Oh, wow. Well, I'm going to, I'll, I'll Spotify them. <clears throat> I'll jump on that one in a hurry. Uh, favorite album? In Absentia. Okay. Wow, this will be a treat. My daughter is uh, just picked up drums during the pandemic. So she's she's really getting into that right now. The drummer for Porcupine Tree is Gavin Harrison, and he's probably the best drummer of this modern era in uh, you know progressive rock and roll. Wow, this is cool. You mentioned drums. What are your hobbies today now? Well, let's see. Let's see. I mean, are you I'm still playing drums. Yeah, I still am. I was in Indonesia recently. Uh, we have a fabrication yard in Batam, Indonesia. We have about eight thousand people there, and. And it was really fun because we had a, um, you know, a barbecue after I, I did a town hall with all the employees. And then we did a barbecue after that. And they had a band there and they wanted me to um, sing with the band. You know, all the employees wanted me to sing with the band. And I said, well, no, but I'll play the drums. And so the, the band, I had heard them warming up and they, they uh, played Tom Sawyer by Rush. And so I, I uh, sat in and played that with them. So that was pretty fun. So, I, I mean, I, I, I play golf, but I've never had enough time to be good at it. You know, and I, um, I ride bicycles and I race bicycles when I was in Norman. Back oh, in the no kidding. Yeah, I was one of the guys that would bring my bicycle into the design lab back before it was cool, you know, to do so back in those days. And um, so there was a you know, handful of us in Norman that would do criteriums and would race around. Wow. Buchanan's bike shop there in Norman was the, the place to go. That was the yeah. best shop. They certainly are. And, and my wife will be thrilled to hear that you love Tom Sawyer, or you're at least uh, <laughs> we're up on stage playing Tom Sawyer. Uh, she's a huge Rush fan. Huge Rush fan. Last question, which OU game would you like to attend? You know, what's, what's interesting about that is in all my, all my years there, I never went to the OU Texas game. No. I, I would go down to the OU Texas game and, and uh, without a ticket. And we would walk, me and my friends, we would walk around the stadium during the game, but we never got inside the game. Wow. You know? Okay. So how about you join us for a game in 2023? Sure. Sure. Do that. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that one. <laughs> oh, we can make that one. It's, it's, it'll be pretty convenient, right? It won't be too far for you. Yeah, yeah. We can make it happen. So, Mike, I know I'm just jumping in here, but if you're interested in going this year, let me know. I can find two tickets, I think. All right. Well, I will, we'll, we'll connect afterward. I'll talk okay. to you about that. All right. Well, hey, thank you for responding to all the questions and, and for the time. Let me turn this around for a second. Do you have questions for me as the as the dean of a of a multidisciplinary college who's a big fan of collaboration and interdisciplinary practice? Well, no, I mean, I think I think what I've seen in you is the willingness to reach out and and to try to learn so the program can learn and and change and develop along the way. And so um, I think that's correct, right? That you're you're really trying to see 
what the future will be. You know, the old uh, Wayne Gretzky trying to be where the puck is going to be. You got it. If you're trying to see what architects of the future are going to have to be able to be prepared for, because the program is like planting a seed and it takes years for that to actually be the case. And so I think collaboration outside of the university environment is a really, really rich thing to do. You know, are, are there other plans that you have in terms of reaching out and trying to connect the students to, um, you know, other, other parts of the world? Well, the, the, uh, thank you for the question. So there, I'm a big fan of this concept of out of culture experience, right? And, and you can define culture in many different ways, right? You know, dialed in from a discipline standpoint, you know, as a dean of, of all these different programs and as a practitioner, I worry about the architect contractor relationship. And so I put on the contractor's hat uh, uh, as often as I do the architects, even though I'm licensed as an architect, I don't have the construction background, but I care deeply about how we make buildings and, and what the, the experience is, right? For not only the, the tradespeople and the, the practitioners, but for the client and certainly what the, what the community gets out of it. And so I'm continually trying to explore how in academia, we can get the contractors interested in the perspective of the architect and the architecture students interested in the contractor's perspective. I find my biggest challenge lies at the faculty level. And, and so that, you know, how to change that culture uh, with those who are doing the educating, so to speak. The firms want it, right? Mm -hmm. Every yeah. practitioner I talk to, whether it's a contractor or architect, they're, they're hungry for, gra for graduates who, who love both sides and are, are so interested on the overlap. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm reshaping my board of visitors right now, and I'm looking for contractors who have this great reputation for collaboration. And we're now plotting uh, uh, some symposia every year where we have architects and contractors get in front of the students and talk about their experiences, getting something built. And exactly like you and I are talking about right now is what can we do differently, right? The same thing isn't getting us, you know, the desired outcome in the 21st century. And so it's, so my interest is in engaging faculty, but finding the right voice that will convince them that they need to recalibrate how they teach. Right. The students want it and the practitioners want it, but it's the faculty I need to change. You know, maybe maybe a bridge that me while we were talking, while you were saying that, you know, we didn't really talk about ESG and we didn't talk about sustainability. Right. The, the connection um, really between all things that is that that bridge of sustainability. And I remember one time. And I think this may be can be something that could help people think about other things. I had a, a young man that worked for me and he would, he was ahead of his time thinking about this kind of thing. And, and we were doing a large project. This was at CH Twim Hill actually many years ago. And, and he came in and he said, you know, it's going to take we're, we've specified gravel underneath the contra the concrete for all of the uh, parking and all the driveways and the roadways and everything on this project. He said, if we were able to use an alternate material, the gravel is being trucked by dump trucks. It's going to be a thousand dump trucks from, you know, 50 miles away. And I've calculated the amount of carbon. 
that these dump trucks are going to be putting into the atmosphere. There's a local power plant uh, about a mile away from the site, and we can get fly ash from the power plant, and we can substitute the gravel base with the fly ash, and we can eliminate the dump trucks, and we can tell the client how much carbon we're saving. And it was, it was the collaboration of a sustainability idea with a constructability idea with a design detail specified. So you brought them all together and the end result was something that was better for the planet. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I think if you've got people that won't collaborate or it's not their nature to collaborate, may- maybe the whole issue of sustainability or net zero or you know, just doing something green can actually bring everybody together because everyone seems to agree that, you know, that's something that we should all try to strive to together, but you can't achieve it by yourself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you, do you find that your clients and uh, are they serious about wanting to, you know, to deal with the, the, the ESG mission? Yeah. And my, and my clients now are the major oil and gas companies. And yeah. so, you know, we, we at McDermott, we're, we believe we're a leader in energy transition, whether it's blue-green hydrogen, the circular economy, carbon capture, utilization, storage, you know, hydrogen, large hydrogen storage. And so you have the major oil companies are trying to be profitable on oil and gas so they can invest in energy transition. They know that they've got to transition to, to greener sources of energy and to move away from hydrocarbons, but they can't do it just instantly, right? So... I think what started a few years ago was everyone giving lip service to it. They were, they were putting it in their branding. They were, they were talking about it. They would have an annual sustainability report or something. They were recycling their trash. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're calculating that kind of thing. But it's, it's gotten serious now. And they have to be able to prove and verify, depending on the country they're in, to a different or lesser degree, exactly what they're doing and what impact that they're making. And then what will they do, you know, trying to get to 2030, 2040, 2050 and beyond. And so it's that, that triangulization of where you have to be decades from now, and then what measurable steps do you have to take along the way to be able to be a a contributor, you know, to really a global initiative. They're taking it seriously. Uh, It's still a challenge for them economically. Yeah. Because uh, a lot of the energy transition choices, we're just not sure which ones are going to win. Mm-hmm. You know, I, w- I was speaking to someone at Hyundai the other day, and they were, they were running a track with hydrogen vehicles and running a track with electric vehicles, and they weren't really sure no kidding. that in the long term, both were going to win. But the money that they were investing in hydrogen research was offsetting money that they could have been investing in, in electric vehicles and vice versa. So I think, I think everyone's taking it seriously. But where there is a gap is in, and perhaps this can come out of the academic world as well, the gap is in small business. The gap is in small enterprises. When you look at a large company, yes, we have people and teams and resources, and we're, we're trying to do the right thing, and, and we want to be an employer of choice and show our employees that we care about the planet and, and all these things. But when you get into a small 10, 15, 20-person company, yeah. They don't have the resources sometimes or the choices. Right. Things. And they, they make up the preponderance of the business in the world, actually. Yeah. Yep. No, that, that, uh, that's a great point. That's a great point. Well, that's interesting that hydrogen, you know, there's not a lot of conversation about hydrogen out in the general public, right? It's almost all electric at the moment. 
So, I mean, yeah. Hydrogen vehicles, in many ways, would probably be more comfortable for people. Uh-huh. In theory, you can fill up your tank with hydrogen, and then your hydrogen performance is similar to a gasoline vehicle, you know, where an electric vehicle takes longer to charge, and then depending on temperature or how fast you go, you lose your, your range and things like this. But hydrogen's a little bit more, but, it's, but it also is easy to leak. You know, it, it's hard to store it, hard to transport it. From, from large supply. So um, we still have a lot of work to do, I think. Yeah. And so you yourself now as CEO, you've got to be anticipating, right? The directions that companies want to go and how can you provide services to them? Yeah. I mean, we, for example, we do, um, because we've been able to build these large scale offshore platforms for oil and gas, the offshore wind farms, they require offshore platforms for the high voltage distribution center work. So you you might have a platform the size of an offshore oil platform that just houses the terminals from all the wind terminals that come into this one place and it's a data center in effect. Yeah. So we're, we're building those in the offshore wind, uh, utilizing something that we've already known how to do, but for an energy transition methodology that's really growing and, and uh, can use our expertise. And mm-hmm. at the same time, like on hydrogen, we were lucky because we've been building hydrogen storage tanks for 50 years. And we built the largest one in the world for NASA. So we have a leg up when it comes to hydrogen storage. Wow. wow. Okay. Oh, that's fascinating. Wow. I, I have so many more questions actually now, but I know that uh, your time is precious. Uh, Karen, did you have any other uh, questions for, for Mike? Well, I, I just was curious, Mike, this has been great for me. I've, I've learned a, a lot, but um, I'm curious about, your adjustment from Massachusetts to Houston. <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've lived, so I was born in Shreveport. I went to Oklahoma. Then I went back to Shreveport. Then I went back to Oklahoma. Then I went to Dallas. Then I went to Germany. Then Germany to Dallas, Dallas to South Carolina, South Carolina to Denver, Denver to Boston, Boston to Houston. Okay. So Moving and relocating from a business perspective is something that I've always just done. Yeah. And travel all over the world is something that I've done for many, many years. So I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Probably the biggest thing I had to um, deal with was when I got uh, the call to see whether I was interested in the CEO position at McDermott. I said to them, I said, I'm not an oil and gas energy guy. Okay, I've been CEO of a, of a commercial building enterprise for the last seven and a half years. And before that, I was at industrial with CH Tom Hill, et cetera, but not oil and gas specifically. So I'm not sure that I'm the person that you want. And the answer was that we're looking for leadership. We have plenty of people that understand the industry. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a key factor for kids, you know, that are in school and are looking at their careers, it's, it really is about leadership. And it's easier to teach a leader the nuances of the industry or the business than it is to teach a business or an industry leader or an industry, you know, technology subject matter expert to be a leader. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, do, we just appreciate your time. Thank you for connecting with us. Well, I enjoyed it, and uh, I'll get with you, and hopefully I'll run into you in Norman sometime. Yeah, yeah. let us know in advance. We'll get you tickets. And then uh, the latest, uh, Mike, 
I'll see you in Dallas at the Texas OU game 2023. How's that? <laughs> Make it a, Sounds good. Right? All right. Great. Well, thanks for your time. Very much appreciate it, Mike. And uh, we'll, we'll let you, uh, we'll give you a preview once we put this all together. Okay. All right, Hans. Thank you all very right. much, Karen. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks. Take care. Bye, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the Gibbs Spotlight. Tune in next time to hear more stories from the Gibbs College of Architecture.